now. Most of you know I live in an old farmhouse. That farmhouse has a roof that has a pitch of eight and five-eighths. If you know anything about roofs, that's probably about almost twice as steep as the house you live in unless you live in an old farmhouse. The point is, I can put a ladder up, I can fasten it to the downspout, I'm not worried that the ladder's going anywhere, and I can walk on that roof. If you saw it, you'd go, you're nuts. You might be right. I can walk on the roof. I didn't tell you I could stand on that roof. You know why? Because I cannot stand on the roof. If I walk up the roof, I'm okay. If I walk down the roof, I'm okay. If I walk across it, I'm okay. But if I stop, within a few seconds, I will start sliding down the roof. I propose to you that our Christian life is very much exactly the same as that. I am totally, Marty, that is the best skit you've ever done. I just wanted to tell you that. Where did you pick this hippie up that was up here? I I was just wondering where that came from. But anyway... The whole point is this, is once we're saved, God didn't save us to sit soaking sour. You know, that's what you can do. You can just sit there, do nothing, and you get sour and critical of everything. That is not the plan of God. God's plan was for us to grow up. And that's exactly what he wants us to do. That's exactly what my next slide will say. There it is. My next slide will say is that God wants us to grow up. The book of Hebrews is the New Testament commentary of the Old Testament. It tells us that Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than any person. And he has done a work that is different than any of the work that any Old Testament priest could do or any Old Testament person had the privilege of living. We can come to a place where we can rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can come to a place that we know our salvation is sure and secure. We can know that we can be in the place of God's blessing. That's what he wants us to know. The book of Hebrews pounds that home time after time after time. But when we get to the passage that's before us today, people get confused. And they say, see, this passage says you can, well... I'll give you a couple interpretations. Number one is they will say, and you haven't even looked at it yet, but they'll say, this isn't talking about real Christians. These people know about Christ. They know about Christianity, but they never were born again. They were never saved. Um, and so what happens to them? It's just the run of the mill. Or other people have said... Uh, that they are, and got this backwards, that they are real Christians and they can lose their salvation. Verse 6 is the one, chapter 6, verse 6 is the one that's the problem. And that is this, it says that they can fall away and it's impossible for them to come to repentance. And they say, see, you can lose your salvation even if you're truly born again and you can lose it. Other people have the theory that this is talking about something hypothetical. While it says these kinds of things, it really doesn't quite mean that. I don't think any of those are right. In fact is, I believe the only thing that makes any sense is this. That there are Christians who are not resting in the finished, complete, and perfect work of Christ. And as a result, they are not growing. They are not living victorious, vibrant Christian lives. They're sit soaking and souring. They're like me on the roof. 
They're not advancing anywhere. They're not moving forward. And they're kind of stalled. And they're sliding down the roof. Now, the answer is, it absolutely uses the word impossible, and it's exactly what it means. It says they cannot come back to repentance, or to be renewed to repentance. But it does not say they lose their salvation. We'll look at that because this verse, uh, this uh, passage, while used to try to teach that, actually teaches 180 degrees the opposite of that when you know what it says. But here's what's happening. And I hope you're not part of this, but if you are, after today, I pray you get this straightened out. That you're missing the place of blessing in God's life. Let me give you the Old Testament illustration that is used when it talks about coming to the place of rest in the book of Hebrews. It comes from Psalm 95. I'm not going to turn there because I don't have time to do that. But Psalm 95 says that they came to the place that God wanted them to go in and they refused to go. Now, if you want to look at the Old Testament story of the nation of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, uh, the Passover, that is a picture of our salvation, redeemed from under the bondage and slavery. In this case, to sin. In their case, it was literal physical slavery. They came out and they went into the wilderness. Israel, had, I mean, uh, Egypt had been chasing them. Uh, they got all drowned in the sea. Uh, and so now God says, okay, it's time to go into the promised land. They came up to the border and they said, ah, and I'm paraphrasing all this. You know what? This is tough. I wish we were back in Egypt. Let's form a posse, uh, program to change direction and go back to Egypt. And God said, okay, you refuse to go in the place of my blessing. You refuse to go in. It's over. All of you 20 years old and older are going to die in the wilderness. You will never see my blessing. It's impossible for you to experience the blessing I had for you. Remember that. That's a very important point. The next day they go, oh man, we have made a huge mistake. We should have done what God asked us to do, what Moses told us to do, and we should have went in. And the next day they decided we're going to go into the promised land. Moses said, don't do it. If you do, you're going to be sorry. They didn't listen to Moses a second time. And they went up to the border of the promised land and they were defeated and chased back into the wilderness by the enemies of Israel. And for the next 40 years, those that were still surviving that were 20 years old and and older, they all died in the wilderness and never saw the blessing of God. It was impossible possible for them to get back because they had disobeyed God. Now, we're going to talk about this in a few minutes here because you go, is it possible to to get to the place where you can never again experience God's blessing, what he fully had in store for you? The answer is, yes, it is. If you don't believe me, the Apostle Paul believed that. 
In fact is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when the people were getting drunk at the communion service and they were being greedy and selfish, he said to them, you're living in an unworthy manner. And because of that, some of you, so he was talking about the Corinthian Christians. He said, some of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And sleep means Not a bed that you can buy at the store. It's not a sleep number. It is your dead. In other words, what God had said, I have benched some of your believers because they would not walk in a manner worthy of what Christ has done for them. In fact, not only were some of them taken out of the, the game and benched, but some of them actually lost their physical life. Their life was brought to an end prematurely. And so they had no opportunity to experience additional blessings that God had for them. The Apostle Paul talked about himself in the the very end of chapter 9. He said, I buffet my body and I exercise and I do all of these things, talking about the Ismanian games. And he says, and I am taking note of myself that when I come to the end, while I may have preached to others, preach them the truth, I myself might be disqualified. Notice he didn't say lose my salvation. He said disqualified. In other words, he was disqualified for the possibility of blessing, a crown, a award or reward for what he had done. He, got to, he said, I never want to be in that place. Now, go back to the roof. I always fastened the ladder. I never had to use it, but I always fastened the ladder. Just in case I did start sliding down, I would grab the ladder. That was at least my plan, and I'm still here, so nothing bad happened. But you know what else I didn't do? I never walked right at the edge of that roof. Believe me, there is no way you could get me to do that, okay? Uh, Only where the ladder was so I can get on the ladder. I never walked on the edge of it. There was a reason for it. Because you go, man, oh man, are you trying to scare us, Pastor? You know, like, we better, we better tow this line? The answer is, no, I am not trying to scare you. This is not a manipulation tactic. The point of this is, he wants us to grow up, to mature as Christians. Which means, you're not seeing how close to the edge can I get until God says, okay, enough's enough. You see, you don't need to worry about that. That's the whole point of this passage. You don't have to be there. You don't have to live at the edge and say, okay, is God going to finally cut me off, bench me, take me out because I'm so worthless as a Christian? The answer is no, you don't need to go there. So my point is not scare you into doing what is right. My point and the The author's point here is to live in such a way you don't even have to think about that kind of thing. Now, I've got 20 minutes left or so. So let's do this, and we're going to do it quickly. You may have a lot of other things. As always, if you want a copy of my notes, they're like 13 pages long, uh, you can just email me. I'll send them to you. So what is the problem in this passage? And we're now in chapter 5, verse 11. They had become, as believers, dull in hearing. In other words, it wasn't that they couldn't hear. They weren't hearing. They stopped listening. That's dull of hearing. They weren't deaf. They just weren't listening. Men, you know exactly what that is like. You hear your wife and you don't respond. 
By the way, how do I know that? My wife's not here, so she doesn't hear this. But uh, yeah, sometimes I do hear and well, I act like I didn't. Okay? The women are laughing. The guys are mad at me now because I told you a secret. But, but you know what? That's what they had done as Christians. They had stopped listening. They had become dull of hearing. They are believers. He says, you have a need to be taught again. These are not a bunch of ignorant people. It wasn't that they didn't know the truths of the word of God. It's just they knew them, but they weren't living according to them. And because they weren't doing that, they needed somebody to come back and encourage and instruct them one more time. Again, they are believers. They knew the truth, but they weren't living it. And now, and I've interpreted this, this next one wrong many times. Like, oh, they're still on milk when they should have been eating steak. That's not the point. They were eating solid food. They were eating all raw vegetables and steak and everything that takes time to chew and digest. They were doing all that. But they had gone Back. And you're going to see that when we get to chapter 6, verse 6. They fell away. They went backwards. And that's exactly what it says. You have need of milk again. They went from eating adult food back to a baby bottle. That's what they had done. So you understand what the, what the writer is telling us. And not only that, it says they were not accustomed to the word of righteousness. It wasn't their experience. They weren't living in the right standing they have with God through Jesus Christ. They weren't living according to the power of the Holy Spirit. They had dropped back and they had gotten out of the habit of living the way Christ had provided. They were not walking worthy. They were not living in His righteousness. They were not growing as Christians. And so they had gotten out of the habit. They no longer were living the way they could. And they were no longer discerning right and wrong. Now that could be sin, absolutely could be. But what they were not discerning is how do you grow as a Christian? What is my security and my salvation? Do I got to keep going back to the law, back to the sacrifices, back to the old rituals, which is what they were doing? Or is it all complete in Christ? And the answer is, and the book of Hebrews, as well as the rest of the New Testament, makes it clear. Our righteousness is all in Christ. There is nothing you can do to add to it. So, but what they had done is they had went back on that. And so they were going back as like, oh yeah, I trusted Christ, but... And then they added, well, I need to offer sacrifices or I need to do some Old Testament ritual or ceremony uh, or one of those kinds of things. Now, that was for the Jewish people. I'll give you an illustration for today later on. So that's the problem. They were believers. They become dull of hearing. In fact, is he said to them, by now you should be teachers, but you need to be taught again. Guess what? When, when somebody says, oh, this is talking about people that aren't really born again, aren't Christians, do you realize he's saying unsaved people should be spiritual teachers? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. The context will not allow that. Now, what do we need to do to take hold of the truth to mature in our salvation? Because that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to keep walking across that roof. He doesn't want us to stop because when you stop, you slide, you slide back and you absolutely do. There's no way to get around that. You're either going forward, going onward, or you're backsliding. 
That's exactly where it is. We're in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. I don't have to guess that my analysis of this passage is correct because he tells us straightforwardly, this is what we need to do. Leave something in the past, but press on. Go forward. Don't stop. And grow up. Become mature. If someone has a child that's born with deformities and they do not continue to mature and grow, our hearts go out to them. Because that's not normal. It's not, it's not the normal thing. We want to see our children grow up and become strong and healthy. And it's, it saddens our hearts when we don't see that happen. I hope we have that same kind of view when we see ourselves in the mirror or we see other people that we should be having input in when we see them not growing and maturing and pressing onward in their Christian life. The apostle that wrote this is like, no, I want you to leave the past, the elemental things, and we're going to talk about what they are in a moment, about the teachings of Christ, and let's press on to maturity. I am going to grasp everything that Christ has made available to me. I'm going to put it into full effect. I'm going to live in obedience. I'm going to live by faith. And I'm going to become strong in the Lord and the power of His might. What are those things that hinder us from growing and maturing? And when you see some of these, you're going to go, wow, I don't understand this. Hopefully when you're done you'll have at least a little bit of a clue. The first thing, what hinders us? Repeatingly looking back at your past life and repenting of it. It says this, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Now, shouldn't we change our mind about the old way we tried to be right before God? You know, I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to do this, or whatever it happens to be. Shouldn't we have a change of mind about those things? Of course, of course. Except that what it's talking about here is repeatedly just going back there. I've seen it, and it's sad to me. People that have trusted Christ 20, 30 years ago, and if you ask them, what is the Lord doing in your life? All they ever talk about is 20 or 30 years ago. I used to be blah, 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 and I used to think this, and I used to do that, and Christ saved me, and Christ saved me. You know what? Nothing wrong with that, but that's where they're stuck. You see, we do change our mind about what we've been doing. We change our mind instead of trusting ourselves or our dead works, we trust Christ. Nothing wrong with that. But they're stuck back there. If that's where you're at and somebody asks you what God is God doing in your life and you talk about what happened years and years ago and you have nothing to say now, I propose to you, you're not moving forward. You're not maturing. You're not growing. You're not becoming stronger. You're not putting into practice the things that God has for us in Christ. What else hinders us? Thinking that you need to repeat your salvation experience and faith toward God. Now, Obviously, there is no way you ever became a Christian without placing your faith in God through Jesus Christ. There's no way you could do that. But if that's the extent, well, I'm saved. I'm not going to hell anymore, but I'm going to heaven. Uh, It's all wonderful. But guess what? You're not pressing on to maturity. You're stuck back on a bottle. You're stuck back in the elementary things, the first things, the foundation. 
I was here when we built this building, and it's a wonderful building. It keeps us dry when it's raining, uh, warm when it's cold out, and we turn the air conditioning on when it's hot out, and it's nice and comfortable. I'm glad we have it. But I remember the foundation of this building. It's not all that pretty. I mean, I saw it. I saw the basement walls, and, you know, they're nice, nice cement blocks and concrete on the outside. But you know what? I don't want to be there. I'd rather we're here. You know, with a roof overhead and walls and, you know, all the systems working. That's what we want. But sometimes we're content with a foundation. And we stay there. The author says, God says, don't stay there. Press on to maturity. Grow up. Keep moving forward. Because if you're not moving forward, you're going to slide downward. That's exactly what happens. Continuing on. We also look back to rituals for our insurance. The actual word here, it says, of instruction about washing. The word washing is actually the word baptism. Nothing wrong with baptism. Every believer should get baptized. Why? Because God commands that if you've trusted Christ as an outward testimony, you should be baptized. Nothing wrong with that. But you know what? If that's where it stops, you're still not moving forward. Again, these are not bad things. They're not wrong things. They're not unspiritual things. It's just you haven't moved forward. That's what he's saying. And so when you just simply look to the past, oh, well, I got baptized. I, I made a very important faith decision. By the way, that is a very important faith decision that you should make sometime shortly after you get saved. But if that's, all you're, if that's where you're at, you're still stunted. Continuing on. Verse 2, not recognizing who you are. You go, how does that work? Laying on of hands. Laying on of hands always in the Bible has to do with identification. I simply don't know who I am. I need to move on. I need to recognize who I am in Christ. I am, and that's a key phrase in the Bible, especially the New Testament, in Christ. You see, everything I have has nothing, as a a Christian, has nothing to do with me. All I did was accept it. I trusted Christ, and it was something I received. It's a finished, complete, and perfect work. And I'm in Christ. It's like being in your car. You, You don't try to push your car, or you don't try to pull your car. You get in the car, and the car takes you. I understand it's a different illustration, but the point is, we are in Christ. He's done it all. He's the one that protects us. He's the one that takes us forward. We need to recognize who we are. We also need to see that looking to the future without living today. My dad used to say, of certain groups, he'd say, they are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Here's what that means. And maybe you do that too, this too. It's like, I can't wait till I have the resurrection of the body. I'm hurting. I'm physically tired. Uh, I'm looking to the future. I'm looking for heaven. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Because the resurrection is obviously a central point or maybe the central point of Christianity. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says we're to be pitied. We're without hope. We're in big trouble if the resurrection didn't take place. Now, this is not talking about Christ's resurrection, but it's the resurrection of the dead. Okay, someday I'm going to have a new body. Someday I'm going to be with Christ. Wonderful, great thing to look forward to. 
But if that's all you're doing, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Because he's saying, press on to maturity. Grow up. Keep moving forward. But he doesn't end there. He says that we are not to be concerned and distracted by judgment or condemnation in the future. In fact, is it says an eternal judgment. If all we are worried about is what's going to happen before I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and that would be for believers, not unbelievers. That's the great white throne for unbelievers. But all I worry about is, well, if I do this, am I going to get a reward for this? Or am I going to be penalized for this? You know what? You're living wrong. Because my whole point in the Christian life should be, am I glorifying God today? Am I being obedient today? Am I moving forward today? Am I appropriating what Christ has made possible in my life? That's what he wants us to do. Is there anything wrong with talking about rewards? No, I've done that before. Is it wrong with talking about the Bema seed of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ? No, a few months ago I preached a sermon on that. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's all we talk about, there's a problem. It's a hindrance because we get sidetracked. But what is God's plan for Christians to grow? It says, and this we will do if God permits. I already know, and that's conditional, as you can see with the word if in there. But there is a place where we can, as I already mentioned when we started, there's a place where you can get to the point you've neglected your salvation, your spiritual growth for so long. You've lived for yourself or whatever else, or you're living in the past, you're trusting in some other thing, that God says enough's enough. Now, I can tell you, because I read the rest of the passage, it says, but I don't look at these, even though I've said these things, this is not what I have in store for you. This is not where I want you to be. I want you to move forward in all the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. But it's there, so we need to look at it. So, we can grow in our salvation because of the things that God makes clear are true in our lives. Now, here's where we go into total positive mode. Here's what happens. We know the truth about salvation. This is what it says. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, the light came on. When we're enlightened by something, the truth all of a sudden hits us. You know it's happened in all kinds of different areas of life. You're trying to learn something new and all of a sudden one day, oh, it makes sense. Your eyes open up. You now understand it. You know, and it happens in all areas of life. Uh, And when you do that, it's one of those really neat things. And you go, wow, why didn't I see it before? But now you see it. Now you have no excuse. And he says, you know the truth about salvation. You have been enlightened. You now see things God's way. It also goes on to say that we have experienced the truth of salvation. We have tasted the heavenly gift, the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you might say, well, hold it a second. That uses the word tasted there. Is is that a correct word? Is that principle correct? The answer is yes. But here's what happens is we say, well, I tasted something and we think about, well, I just put my tongue on it and like, oh, that's sweet, sour, salty, whatever else. That's not the biblical word, folks. If it was, you've got a really big problem with your salvation. The 
basis of your salvation. Because in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says very clearly that Jesus Christ tasted death for us. Did He just talk about it? Did He just play it? Did He just fake it? Did He just, oh, that's death. I don't like it. No! When it says He experienced death for us, He died on the cross. He died for our sins and was buried. You don't bury people who tasted death in a sense that it's something on the outside. No, it's somebody that's really dead. You don't bury people that are alive. And then there's the resurrection, and you don't have resurrection if they're not dead. See, when it says Jesus Christ tasted death for all of us, it means he experienced fully death for us. He knows exactly what death is like. And what it's saying here is we have tasted, fully experienced the heavenly gift. These are true believers. They are born again. They have fully experienced what Christ had in store for them. They know sin's forgiven. They know the gift that God has given. But it doesn't stop that way. It says they have been given the Holy Spirit. How does it say it? They have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They have, again, it doesn't use the word tasted here, but the concept is they have been made a part of, a partaker of the Holy Spirit. The thing, we call this the church age. You could just as easily call it the age of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is doing something today that He never did before. And that is that we are indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit. That had never happened in the Old Testament. David prayed, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That is not a prayer for today. Because when you trust Christ, you are a partaker of the Holy Spirit. He, according to 1 Corinthians, he takes up residence inside of us. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he lives within us. They truly experienced and partook of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had taken up residence in their body, in their life. We have also experienced God speaking into our life. It says, and have tasted the good word of God. Now, this is not talking about having your devotions. This is not talking about memorizing scripture. Those are all good things. But this is talking about experiencing, tasting, fully experiencing the power of the word of God. I'd put it this way, if if God asked me how to put it, I'd say, you have known what the truth is, you have by faith been obedient, and you have seen the end results. That's what this is talking about. They have fully experienced the Word of God being worked out in their lives. They had seen what God is like. They had seen the work of God in their lives. They had tasted, experienced what God wants to do in their lives. Again, they knew the truth. They had actually experienced some of the truth, but they had fallen away. We have also experienced God's eternal power. It says, and the powers of the age to come. This just kind of takes the last one that I talked about and goes a step further. Because we have seen the supernatural, heavenly working of God, the power of the age to come. And the age to come... Everything is good. Go to the book of Revelation and find out what heaven is like. All the former things are passed away. You're fully in God's presence. You see his miracle, supernatural kind of power. 
He said, they had experienced God answering prayer, doing things that are unexplained. And if God is the God of the Bible, He does things that you cannot naturally explain. It's not how we live, but they uh, on a regular basis. But it is, have you experienced God working in your life? As an act, when you've been obedient, when you've prayed. I put it this way. I disband all prayer requests and prayer meetings at Garden Chapel if I didn't believe this. And we've seen answers to prayer. God has just done things beyond that. You know what? We have no excuse because we know what the future is going to be like. And we have experienced that to some extent. But here's where the problem starts in this verse. And I'm about ready to run out of time. So hang on to your seats. It says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6, it says, And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Later on, and I'll put your eyes down on verse 8, it says at the very end, but is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. And people put these two together and say, see, that's hell. That's because they've lost their salvation to go to hell. Let me tell you something. Just because the whole concept of fire and burning is there does not mean it's hell or the lake of fire. Similar is not the same. How do I know that? How do I know it in this case? For example, just one example, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says that all of us have work in our lives as Christians. If you're a Christian, you are going to be held accountable for what you did. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 makes that clear. Was your life worthwhile or worthless? Stand before the judgment seat of God, Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says that those things that don't meet the test, the hay, wood, and the stubble, are, guess what? Burned up. I like to say that heaven will have a lot of people entering it that smell like smoke. Because everything they did as a Christian just got burned up because they were doing it for the wrong motives. Uh, they, they just weren't doing it by faith. They weren't doing any of those things. On the other hand, there are those works that are gold, silver, and precious stones. Fire does not affect them. In fact, is the only thing fire would do to any of those is purify them. And so just because it mentions being burned up here doesn't mean lost salvation. In fact is, it's very interesting that it says in verse 8, it says it is worthless, kind of the same thing we already saw in First and Second Corinthians, and close to being cursed. Notice what it says, close to being cursed. First Corinthians chapter 11, when he's talking about the communion service, it says that we are to walk worthy of what Christ has done for us. And if you won't judge yourself, then God will judge you. And why does he judge you? So you will not be condemned along with the rest of the world. Hebrews chapter 12 says it a different way. It says that he is our perfect heavenly father and he chastises all those that are his sons. Why? Because he wants us to live a holy life, just like any father would. In Sunday school class, Scott mentioned, you know, we have a disaster in our in our society, and he says, I blame it mostly on dads and husbands, and I totally agree with him. But God is a better father than I'll ever be and ever was. The point is, he does discipline us. 
And there is the place and the possibility that we get to such a point where God says, I'm done, enough's enough. But the word that fallen away is not the word lost your salvation. It's the word apostatized. It simply means, and they had to have been Christians, simply because you cannot fall away from something that you already didn't have. And they were literally, they deviated from the right path. They went wayward. They apostatized. They fell away from what they know. Remember, they should have been teachers, but they need to be taught. They should have been on solid food, but they're back on milk. They weren't maturing. They weren't growing. They weren't going forward. And as a result, they fell away. The roof, they stopped going forward. Now, if I fall off the roof, my wife doesn't like me going up there. I've been a few years. She doesn't watch when I go up on the roof. She probably ought to, but she doesn't because she doesn't want to see me splat. But you know what? Even if I splatted off the edge of the roof, I'd still be her husband. Might still be Paul Malfair. I'd be all of those things. I just might be dead or crippled. You know what? That's the point here. It's not that I become something else. I'm just simply not what I should be. And it says that it's possible that for opportunity to be permanently passed, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Again, not a scare tactic, folks. Please, this is not a scare tactic. But it represents reality. Here's the whole point. Is when you know the truth, be obedient to it. When God has given you privilege... Take advantage of it. Move forward, grow up, and you never have to worry about that. It's like, and I'm just telling you, it's like the person who drives down the highway all the time looking in the rearview mirror. They're a dangerous driver. You know why they're looking in the rearview mirror? Because they're, they know that they've done something wrong, and they're paying more attention to a policeman and uh, lights in their mirror than they are to what they're doing. I propose to you, if you drive the way you're supposed to, occasionally you'll look in the rearview mirror. That's a good, safe thing to do. But you don't drive looking in the rearview mirror. You drive looking ahead to the future. That's what this passage is telling us to do. I am now officially out of time, but one last thing we got to clarify, because it says, since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. You go, how in the world do you explain that? Simply this, if you've gone back to some other old way of claiming your salvation, keeping your salvation, or growing in your salvation, you have said that what Christ did wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. You had to add something to it. And if you do that, what you also have to say is that if I'm going to continue on, then Christ has to be crucified again. And that is absolutely the opposite of what all Scripture teaches. Once for all time, he offered his body, and then he sat down. Remember that? We looked at that last week. You say, well, we're not, we're not uh, Jewish Christians. This was written to Hebrew Christians. Uh, what about us? In Roman Catholicism, every Sunday when they take Mass, they are, according to their, uh, this is not my opinion, this is what they say, is they are offering the same sacrifice over and over again. Same kind of thing. You see, they're going back, way back here. No, don't go there. You say, oh, yeah, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't do that. But I propose to you, 
We've looked at a whole bunch of other things, those elementary things. Are you back there? Are you, you back there? Or are you moving forward? The whole point of this, and I'm going to close by just reading, uh, and I got, I, is verse 18. I'm just going to read this because I am thoroughly out of time. And it, actually, I need to start in 17 because I'm in the middle of a sentence. It says, in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Notice, he's saying Christ did it all. And not only did he die, was buried and rose again, but he has entered into heaven. Sin has been paid for. Our Christian life has been paid for. Everything we need has been provided. And we are to live in the light of what Christ has done for us. It's not, oh, I hope I don't. I hope I don't ever get to where the Israelites were, where I missed the blessings. Or I'm ne- I hope I'm never like the Corinthians where God takes me out. I don't want anybody in this audience to ever think that way. You can, if if you're in total rebellion, then you ought to be thinking that way. But here's what the passage says. Grow up, mature, go forward, live to the fullest, victory, vibrant, living for Christ. In your own personal life, as Marty and the, the crew demonstrated in witnessing and telling other people, that's where I live. That's the place of blessing. It's the place of joy. I don't want to miss God's blessing. I need all the blessing I can get. Believe me, I need all the blessing I can get. But if I'm not willing to live that way, I am going to X myself out from it. I'm going to fall away from what I should have, what I could have, what God wants for me. I see this as a very encouraging passage because God says, I provided it all and you have it all. Now, all you need to do, just like in your salvation, is you need to, by faith, put it into practice. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for everything you've done for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, He alone has made everything possible from our salvation to our Christian life to a home in heaven for all eternity. Something really worth looking forward to. Lord, I pray that none of us would be looking in the rearview mirror. None of us would be standing still and sliding in the wrong direction. But all of us would be looking upward, growing up, maturing, pressing on in our Christian life, in every way wanting to please Him, working out our salvation that You have given us. Lord, I pray that this challenge would go with us and direct our paths, our thinking, our actions, and our faith. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God. Morning.